On Epiphany Sunday, we generally focus on the Magi, the wise men from the East who followed the star towards the Christ child. These men are dignitaries from faraway lands, Gentiles who attend Jesus' birth and bow down to him in worship, dispensing various gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so on Epiphany, we celebrate Jesus' revelation to the Gentiles, reminding us that he came to save not only Israel, but the whole world. Now that being said, there are other aspects of this story that I think are also worth exploring. In particular this year, I want to pay a little closer attention to the threat that's lurking in the background, namely King Herod who wants to kill Jesus and will stop at nothing until he is wiped from the face of the earth. Can the gifts of the Magi protect this child? For a while, maybe, as this unforeseen windfall will fund his family's flight to Egypt as refugees. But they can't keep him safe forever. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that star, when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Every year around Christmas time, I worry that I might have spoiled my kids. Between Santa's exuberant generosity and our own gifts piled on top of more presents and cards filled with money from relatives, it all just feels like a little bit much. I mean, I was spoiled too. I can remember being a kid and just swimming in a sea of wrapping paper on Christmas morning. My brother and I completely surrounded by boxes and hand-wrapped packages. I suppose I turned out all right, more or less. But when I look at my youngest son, Levi, just a few days after Christmas, wearing aviator shades and silk pajamas while carrying around a fat stack of bills, talking about how he's a quadrillionaire, I can't help but worry that he has succumbed to the cult of consumerism. Of course, my wife and I already spoiled them in a hundred other ways, uh, you know, Christmas notwithstanding, and they really don't need any more stuff. Wiser parents would be trying to wean them off of the materialist hamster wheel, trying to teach them that there are more valuable things than things. And I do. I frequently remind both of my kids to appreciate what they have instead of pining for more. But in a world that's dominated by endless advertising, decadent YouTube influencers, and billionaire worship, contentment is a hard sell. They always want more. To wit, as of late, uh, Levi, my son Levi, has gotten into collecting Pokemon cards. Now, these have been around for quite a while, and, and a lot of you probably know what those are, but for the uninitiated, Pokemon are, are cute little cartoon creatures with different strengths and weaknesses that human trainers battle against one another in this card game. I brought a couple of Pokemon plushies just to give you a, just to give you a sense of what these look like. So this is, uh, this is Charizard, this is Snorlax, he doesn't do much but sleep so he's, he's not very useful but they're cute, right? I'll just leave those right here. So the trainer's job, naturally, is to raise their Pokemon to be strong. The franchise originated in Japan in the late 90s with a series of video games, TV shows, and collectible cards. And much like Transformers back in the 80s, the TV show was basically an elaborate commercial for the toys. In the case of Pokemon, the series follows a 10-year-old boy uh, named Ash Ketchum, who wants to be the world's greatest Pokemon trainer. He goes on adventures with his Pokemon pal, Pikachu. I brought, brought him along, too. This is a little Santa Pikachu. Um, and he goes on these adventures with, with Pikachu. He makes lots of friends along the way. And most importantly, he collects and trains a wide variety of Pokemon, reminding kids at home to do the same by purchasing these collectible cards. And he never goes anywhere without his signature hat. This was also a Christmas present for Levi. Now in 1997, there were only 100 different Pokemon, okay? But today, according to Google, there are 1,008. Those of you who are familiar with this franchise will know the, the slogan, gotta catch them all. Naturally, there are different series of cards that come out every year along with new Pokemon, and each Pokemon has a dozen different cards with their picture on it, so really there are thousands 
of these cards, some of the rare ones being worth hundreds of dollars or more, whoever came up with this is a marketing genius. Gotta catch them all. Ash Ketchum. Get it? Now you add all this together, and what you've got is a seven-year-old with a literally insatiable appetite for these Pokemon cards, determined to catch them all, a lofty goal that is functionally impossible. Financially, it's a black hole. But we keep on buying them anyway because I love to see the smile on his face when he opens up a pack of them and his excitement when he gets an especially good one. I wonder, though, if I ought to be harder on my kids, if my indulgence makes them soft, leaves them unprepared for life's hardships, which only seem to be growing in this day and age. I was talking to a fellow pastor recently. This is a true story. He told me that a member of his congregation called him up and said that he wanted to leave some money to the church upon his passing. I don't want to leave too much for my kids, the man explained, not wanting to spoil them too badly. I think about $3 million for each of them ought to be sufficient. The pastor had to catch his breath somewhat, stunned at this figure, and composing himself, he replied into the phone, you know, I've always thought of you like a father. Did the Magi spoil Jesus, I wonder, with their extravagant gifts of expensive perfume and gold? Well, it's not exactly as if he grew up in the lap of luxury, right? Jesus' upbringing prepared him to live in a hard world ruled by tyrants and their violence. As romanticized as the nativity scene is, it's easy to forget the threat that lurked in the shadows. Herod, the insecure puppet king of the Romans, believed that a Messiah would come to unseat him from his throne. And he was so paranoid, so deranged, that he exterminated all of the children in Bethlehem who were two years old or less in an attempt to kill Jesus. So no, I wouldn't say that Jesus was spoiled by a few nice presents. He was born in a stable, spent his childhood as a refugee in Egypt, and grew up to be a blue-collar tradesman in a small town. The gifts of the Magi probably kept his family afloat for a while while they were on the run from Herod. I imagine the gold was especially useful. And those years of hardship prepared Jesus for even greater struggles to come. Long months on the road calloused his feet dusty highways of an itinerant preacher. A humble diet of bread and fish taught him that man does not live by bread alone. The slivers of wood that every carpenter knows prepared his hands to take up the splintered cross. And the threat of Herod from an early age taught Jesus just what people in power are truly capable of. In a sense, that much hasn't changed. Worldly power remains corrupt. And its insatiable greed has left the next generation with a meager inheritance. The middle class has been hollowed out by decades of 
systematic wealth redistribution as more and more young adults opt to live with their parents, avoid having children. College tuition has increased by about 3,000% in the last 50 years, while wages have grown only by about 17.5%. Housing is quickly becoming unaffordable with 30% of homeowners and renters paying more than 30% of their income for the roof over their heads. Artificial intelligence and automation promise to obliterate any number of career prospects. The balance of nature has lost its equilibrium as we approach tipping points that will further devastate the biosphere. Entertainment has become more affordable and accessible, while things like healthcare and education and home ownership and retirement slip further and further away. As Pink Floyd's Roger Waters once sang, glued to a screen in the state of Nevada, to follow the dream gets harder and harder. So whether you're a parent or a grandparent, an uncle or an aunt, a mentor or a teacher, how on earth are we supposed to prepare the next generation for this inheritance that we've left them? I recently listened to a podcast called Raising Children in a Time of Collapse. It was part of a much longer series about the future and the many challenges that our world faces today. And the speakers, both fathers themselves, offered plenty of sobering commentary, but they arrived at a somewhat encouraging conclusion, namely that raising kids today is ultimately no different than it was at any other point in history. Of course, things have radically changed at a surface level. A hundred years ago, parents didn't have to worry about managing their kids' internet activity or collecting Pokemon cards, but the essence of raising children is much the same, which is to say that we still have to teach them how to make it in the world on their own. And that means teaching them to be resilient. Yes, the world is hard. Yes, it has always been hard. Yes, it is hard in new ways that are frightening. And the response to hardship, regardless of its particulars, is resilience, the ability to struggle, contend, endure. We instill resilience in a number of ways, teaching kids to do things on their own, for instance, and letting them make their own mistakes along with suffering the consequences. I struggle with this when I consider it a major accomplishment that my 11-year-old can microwave his own chicken nuggets, but we're getting there. But one of the most important things that we can do, perhaps the most important thing that we can do for the young people or children in our lives, are to remind them that they are loved, that they are precious, that you are glad beyond measure that they exist and that they are a part of your life. A kid who grows up without that, filled with self-doubt and insecurity, is all the more susceptible to life's hardships. But one that knows she is loved can walk taller, struggle, contend, endure, and love. And more than this, they can even make the world a better place with that love, an ability that will be sorely needed in the days to come. 
You know, for all of its cynical marketing ploys, the Pokemon television show actually does have some pretty good lessons. Ash Ketchum, only 10 years old, dreams of becoming the world's best Pokemon trainer. And time and again, that dream is dashed against the rocky shores of reality as stronger trainers defeat him in battle and championship trophies repeatedly elude his grasp. Some of these other trainers cheat. Some of them even abuse their Pokemon, thinking that might makes right. But Ash, even when he is defeated, never surrenders his principles. It's a lot like the original Rocky film in many ways. People often forget that Rocky loses the fight at the end of the movie, but he never loses himself. It's not really a story about victory. It's a story about resilience. And it's not just Ash's repeated defeats that offer kids a lesson in reality. It's also his perseverance, his indomitable spirit, his unwillingness to give up, and his eagerness to help other people along the way. Wherever he goes, he leaves the world a little bit better than he found it, regardless of whether he fulfills his own dream. Friends, I suppose there's no hiding it any longer, as you've probably figured it out by now. The real twist in this story is that I was the real Pokemon fan all along. My son likes to collect the trading cards, but uh, I've been watching that cartoon for 25 years. <laughs> I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A couple of weeks ago, just before Christmas, Levi got off the school bus and I immediately knew something was wrong. His cheeks were streaked with tears as he shuffled toward me in his big winter coat, his backpack slung over his shoulder. What's wrong, buddy? I asked him. Someone stole my Pokemon cards, he mumbled, a bit choked up. He went on to tell me that he'd left his backpack open in the classroom during recess, and when he returned, about 20 of his favorite cards had disappeared, apparently taken by some opportunistic, unprincipled thief. Maybe that seems like a harsh judgment for a second grader, but I don't care how old the kid is. <laughs> Just despicable. It was a real Ash Ketchum moment, though, you know, as my, my son stood defeated by an unscrupulous Pokemon trainer who thinks the rules don't apply. My heart broke for my son. It's a, it's a terrible thing to be robbed. You feel violated. And as his father, I had to decide how I was going to respond to this. There was really no way to catch the thief, so reporting it was a bit pointless, and frankly, he wasn't really supposed to bring him to school anyway, so wasn't about to open that can of worms. The real question was, was I going to replace what had been stolen or simply sit with him in his grief? I thought about it, and I realized that as an adult, Levi would lose things that I could not replace. He would lose things that could not be replaced. So I decided not to replace the cards. I snuggled up with him on the couch with my arm around him, let him talk about what he'd lost, wiping away the occasional tear. And you know, an hour later, he was already back on his feet talking excitedly about what cards he might find next. Kids really are resilient. And when they know that they're loved, they get even stronger. 
The gifts of the Magi were nice and all, but it was his parents' love amidst the struggles of his life that made Jesus strong enough to change the world. And maybe that is the greatest gift that we can leave to the next generation. They don't need more stuff. God knows we've already left them too much baggage. But they will always need more love. Don't we all? Amen.